Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-336 of the Run Run Live podcast. I'm squeezing this one in on an off week, just like the old days when I used to do it every week. To help out my interviewee today, Anthony Solazarno, sounds like a character from a Quentin Tarantino film, but he's not. He's a lifelong runner with a passion who's making or actually has made a movie called Varsity Punks and his Kickstarter campaign to put the finishing touches on this new movie about cross-country team, about running in high school, ends on April 13th. I figured with a little extra midnight oil on my part, I could get this episode up in time before that Kickstarter closes. So if you want some good swag and want to help Anthony bring a running-themed feature-length film to market, go now and kick some cash his way. I'm not getting any kickbacks. I just like the idea of the discussion around running as a real sport out in the open. I'll try to uh, help people when and where I can. It's karma. So, yeah, we're talking to Anthony today about his movie. Go watch the trailer. It's cool. The links are in the notes. If I can swing it, that means you'll get three podcasts in three weeks, probably more than you can listen to. But it is racing season. Maybe there's a race you can use it for. Plus all the good stuff I'm putting into the members section. In the first section, I'm going to talk about why sometimes your training is always hard and why that's okay. In the second section, I wax counter-pop culturally about passion. And what I'm not going to give you are any advertisements, no Harry's Razors, no Audible, no Stamps.com. And actually, while we're on the topic, I think you should go to the post office. The public post is one of the great enablers of civilized society. Yeah, it's slow, and everyone's grumpy, but that's why you should go down there. Think of the great impact you and your positive attitude can have on those poor, lost souls standing in line at the post office. If you bought your stamps online, you'd be denying them your bright light. And those confused old people using pennies to buy stamps... That's the greatest generation. They're the defenders of democracy in the Western world. You should get to know them. Get thee to the post office. Go when it's busy. Stop along the way and bring some coffee and donuts. Strike up conversations. Make friends. Make someone's day. Life is not just about the miserly squeezing of pennies and minutes. Treat it like a safari, an adventure. We are ad-free and listener-supported. To keep it that way, we have created, we being me, members-only content. By signing up, you will get access to exclusive member-only audio. can check out the zombie story I posted last week. It's awesome. I really liked it. And exclusive access to the individual audio segments from all the shows. And I've worked through episodes 4329 through 4-335 in pieces already up. And other benefits, as requested by you, because when you're a member, it's all about you. So, link is in the show notes. And I'd like to thank Eric and Keating and Cliff and Judith for paying the dealer this week. I asked for feedback, 
And Eric said that I'm just not funny anymore, that I used to be funny. So I'll tell you some jokes. Clean jokes, you know, for the kids, for all you teachers and coaches. So the first one is for trail runners. How do crazy runners get through a forest? They take the psychopath. Get it? No? You didn't like that one? Okay, the next one I may have converted from a blonde joke. Why did the Labrador Retriever jog backwards? She wanted to gain weight. See? Backwards? No? All right, well, here's one the three- to five-year-olds will think is hilarious. Did you hear about the race between the lettuce and the tomato? The lettuce was ahead, but the tomato was trying to catch up. I kicked ass two weeks ago in the Eastern States 20-miler as my last tune-up for Boston. I came in at 5 to 10 seconds mile faster than my goal pace, even though it was my second 20-miler inside of seven days, and I had to make a two-minute potty stop at mile seven. My heart rate was a bit high, and I had a little power loss in the 16 to 18-mile range, but my legs were strong, and I finished strong. So all the lights are green for Boston. We just have to get decent weather, and I have to figure out how to navigate around the fourteen to 16,000 runners between where I'm starting and my pace group. So my number is 28766 if you want to track me. Now I'm in my taper. And that doesn't mean I'll stop training. It just means I'll switch to race-specific training like shorter speed work, strength and stretching, and I also have to rein in my diet to see if I can stay within the race weight zone, maybe lose a little weight. And I was a wrestler in high school, so I know how to use that. Uh, I know how to drop weight. <laughs> not always the healthiest thing. I've been pretty hard on myself for not being able to make this qualification time that I'm chasing. And I could have knocked this out without too much struggle in 2011 before I ran <laughs> into a couple of wee health problems, challenges. But I suppose if you look at the age-graded curve with the new qualification times, you could make the case that if I succeed this year, it will be an age-graded PR for me by three to five minutes. I don't know. I try not to get too wrapped around the axle on this sort of mental gymnastics, it's all a bit self-serving. Anyone who wants to say hi on Marathon Weekend, that's typically a challenge for me because I'm pretty busy. And I, frankly, I like to lay low before the race. I usually go into the expo on Saturday morning to get my stuff. Uh, my club has a hotel room at the finish line. If you want to stop by and have a shower or an adult beverage, I'll be there. Fair warning, though. Given my starting corral... I may not be rolling in until after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's ironic that I'm almost back to where the traditional noon start was that we used to have for the race. Crazy days. Everything is going too well. Must be a crisis coming. Getting ready to talk with Anthony this week. I did some reminiscing about my stint on my prep school cross-country team. And I'm fairly confident that my time on a New England prep school team was probably different than Anthony's time running in high school in East L.A. Who knows? Maybe there's more similarities and differences. I only ran for my last two years in school, and I joined up because the captains of the wrestling team were also the captains of the cross-country team. And we had a pretty small team, but I made the varsity team. I was the fifth man. And this is the slow guy that you need to fill out the team for scoring purposes. The top five guys get scored in the meets, and so I would finish in the middle of the pack. I was probably running in you know low six-minute mile range. Story of my life, steady, 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 steady and mediocre. And I hated the races. Our courses were short, mostly off-road. Some of them had obstacles like steeplechases, like fallen trees, steep hills, stuff like that but also a lot of athletic fields. And most of the courses in our league were two miles or less. So it was pretty much an all-out anaerobic effort. And those short races, they just hurt like hell. They'd line us up across some soccer field or something in separate corrals by team, 
maybe a couple hundred feet of starting line, all spread out. And then, invariably, after about 100 meters or so, they'd slam everybody into a single path trail. So everyone would have to come off the line in a dead sprint to get to the trail first and box out the other guys and get positioned. So it was a bit like the Hunger Games. But I love the practices. We'd go out as a team on these long runs around Groton, where I grew up, out on the back roads and through the woods. It was awesome. And I learned a lot about training and running. And we used to ride to away meets in a school van because our team was so small, we could fit in one van. And our coach would drive. He was a kindly guy who was also the trigonometry teacher. And oddly enough, he smoked a pipe. It was the 70s. The pipe tobacco he liked was called Borkum Riff, and I can remember that smell as he smoked his pipe in the van on the way to the meet. Uh, Sports were never a giant priority for me, and I'm super glad that the school I went to forced you to do competitive sports. If they hadn't, I might never have learned what little athleticism I was capable of. And it isn't about winning or being a champion. It's about learning, learning what you're capable of, right? Learning how to be a member of a team, learning how to suffer for that team, maybe. So make sure when you're bringing up your own kids and in your community that they have that opportunity to learn. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Why does my training always hurt? Should it? I've been through many, many training cycles over the years, and I notice that when I'm doing it the right way, it's almost always hard. I think that's a myth or maybe a mindset challenge that we have, that at some point, the training effect is going to kick in and you're going to feel great. And it might not be the case. You might never have, or you might have very few of those it-feels-easy days. It's hard. Yes, the training effect is a real thing. Yes, you get better as you train, but that doesn't necessarily mean the workouts get easier. And it can be mentally discouraging. You can get mentally weary from many hard workouts in a row. You can feel like you're never going to turn the corner. The truth is, everybody feels like that sometimes. You have to trust your training plan and your coach, if you have one. You have to mentally focus on doing as well as you can with the workout that you have been assigned for that day, for now, and not worry about whether it sucks or not. And that's hard to do, especially if you're training for a specific event. You may be grinding through hard workout after hard workout, and you wonder, how the heck am I ever going to be ready for this race If I feel like this on race day, I'm sunk. The truth is, all your training may feel hard, but that could make your race feel easy. In this case, your goal is not to train to make your training feel easy, or at least easier. Your goal is to do well in your event, and sometimes that means all the training feels hard. You have to mentally separate the training from the event and trust your plan. All plans are designed to have you peak on race day. All your workouts can be horribly hard, and you can still have a great race after the appropriate taper and recovery and race prep. And it's okay for your training to feel hard, as long as you're fit and rested on race day. It's actually quite common to have all your training feel like work, but then have your race go off very well. Your training performances are an indicator of your fitness, but not an indicator of your race day fitness. For example, you may want to push yourself to the failure point in training, but you wouldn't want to do that midway through your target race. Having found that failure point in training gives you a better idea of what to do in your race. There are two valid reasons for your training feeling hard. The first is that the training cycle is a series of hard efforts with recovery. Typically, these are in waves that build in intensity as you get closer to the event. And the last hard wave crests two to three weeks before your event. And then you taper, you tune into the event. Think of this as a rubber band that you're stretching or a spring that you're compressing. 
Each time you push a little harder and put more stress into that spring. Each time the spring is compressed a little more. And then on race day, you release all that stored up energy from that spring. When you're working to compress the spring, it may seem hard. And you may not realize just how much power you're putting into the bank. You only realize it when you release the spring on race day. The key to maximize the benefit you get out of a training plan is to get as close to the edge as you can, but still recover. Push as hard as you are capable of and then step back and let the adaptations caused by that effort take root. When each workout cycle is harder, you may feel like it's all work. But if your plan is good, you are actually recovering and improving with each cycle to be able to peak on race day. It isn't the workout that makes you better, it's the recovery and adaptation to that workout that makes you better. The second reason all workouts may feel hard is that the variety of workouts doesn't allow you to fall into a groove. You may only do core work once a week. That's enough to get race fit, but it's not enough to ever make the core work feel easy. If all you did was the same core workout three times a week, you'd get used to it and it would start to feel easy. Because you need the variety of workouts, core, legs, arms, chest, hills, all that stuff, you can't get enough cycles of any particular one, and you don't want to for those workouts to make them feel easy. It's okay for all the workouts to feel hard. There's also one very not okay reason all your workouts could feel hard, and that one reason is that you have overtrained. What happens with overtraining is that you don't give your body enough recovery. So going back to the spring analogy, this is where you push so hard and so long that you break the spring. You break the spring's ability to store energy and its ability to bounce back. A good training plan and a good coach will pull you back from the edge before you go over. They will maximize the push, but also give you enough recovery to not throw your system out of whack. So remember, everyone is different. How you react to a workout is different than how someone else will. How fast you recover is dependent on you and your fitness. That's why coaching can help us because they will monitor us and pull us back from that edge of overtraining. So in summary, if you are training for an event, your workouts are supposed to feel hard. It's okay. In your head, separate the workouts from the event. Just because the training seems crappy doesn't mean your race is going to be bad. Don't get discouraged. Focus on doing today's workout. Trust your plan. Trust your coach. Make sure you're getting enough variety and recovery to avoid overtraining. The way you wrap your head around the training cycle is a large contributor to your eventual success. Understand those hard and crappy workouts for what they are. Just bricks in a wall you're building. You just don't get to see the finished product until the end. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Anthony, we're live. How are you doing? What's up, Chris? I'm good. <laughs> so, Solarzano over here. Oh, is it sunny there? Anthony, yeah, it's, you know what? It's a little cloudy today, but it, it's been beautiful. I thought you guys were getting like some wet weather. It's wet as it gets out there. Yeah, we had a half day of one hour of rain, and then it cleared up just to be a beautiful day. And those are the best days because you get those clouds that give that nice texture in the sky, but it's nice. So I'll tell you a story. <laughs> I was out in uh, L.A. last couple weeks ago, and I was staying near LAX, and I went out running uh-huh. uh, in the morning. And I said, well, you know, I'm really close to the ocean. I can see it on the map. I'm going to find my way to the beach. <laughs> and I turned a one-hour run into a two-hour run. I, I knew where this was going. Yeah, you see it? I'm like, oh, it's right there. But I did. I got to Manhattan Beach oh, wow. and uh, and found my way back. Uh, but it was hot. Even, you know, for you guys, it's not hot, right? But for me, it was hot. No, no, no. It's, it's the opposite. We have like 65-degree weather, and it's cold. Like, what is Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So anyhow, <laughs> enough of that. So you're producing, I guess. You're doing everything for a new feature-length movie that you're trying to get funded here called uh, Varsity Punk. So why don't you give me the pitch? Give me the 200 words or less on what you're up to. Sure. Well, here's the, here's the log line of the story. The coolest kid at school, he's a star quarterback, football player in high school. He breaks his hand, and he's going to end up joining the uncoolest sport on campus, 
which is cross country, and they happen to be like his arch rivals ever since grade school, and they got to learn to be champions if they're going to be a good team. I really wanted to explore the social hierarchy that exists in high school, where you try to fit in, whether you're cool or not cool, and, and the role that team sports plays in belonging as a teenager. So were you a high school cross country runner? I was, four-year cross country runner. And then I, I ran in college, actually. I ran on the track team at USC. So I did run NCAA, but I was a walk-on. I just held on to the backpacks of NCAA. But it was a, it was an exciting experience, though, to see that level. Yeah, it's such an interesting dynamic. A lot of people just don't know what cross-country is. And I think I saw that a little bit of that in the trailer. What's the cross-country team, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think uh, it's funny because so many people do it. Every high school, or at least almost every high school, has a cross-country team. And it has anywhere probably... Depending on the size of the school, 30 to 100 kids. But it's so mis underrepresented, at least in mainstream pop culture, whether it be movies or whatever. But people know about it. It's out there. Yeah, so you you shot this movie, and now you're trying to get it edited. And it looks like it's sort of a, a do-it-yourself approach or a it-takes-a-village approach to, uh, yeah. to get this movie made. Yeah, definitely. So we did shoot it in the summer. We actually edited already. We're doing the final post-production stuff, which is like sound design. Like, let's say it's a cross-country meet and we shoot a conversation. Well, we still need the announcers in the back, the footsteps, people cheering. You got to add all these sound effects and someone's got to build those sounds. So that's the only stuff we need. But in terms of putting this movie together, definitely it took the community. I shot it in my local hometown of El Monte, California. And we use social media to put the word out. Like, we need extras for this scene, for a running scene, for a football scene. And it's exciting for people to be like, oh, let's go be in a movie. Or that's kind of how we put the project together. Social media, word, and just rally around a lot of people and borrow locations to shoot at. In the culture of your community there, that's where you, did you grow up there? I did. I grew up in El Monte, which is about 15 miles east of downtown LA. Yeah. So is that culture, I'm assuming, I'm going to ask the question anyhow, though, is that culture kind of have a running history, right? Yeah. At least the high school that I went to has a good history of, of successful runners. But in general, no, not the city and the area. No, there is, uh, it's not known for running necessarily. Just I happen to come from a, a good program where, our coach was, uh, he had a good run in terms of championships. But yeah. no, it's its not considered cool by any means. It's not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the coach in this case you got in the movie is the guy who played uh, Pedro in uh, Napoleon Dynamite there, right? So he's an ex-runner too? Yeah, uh, Efren Ramirez, he's not an ex-runner, but he's a fitness enthusiast. He, he goes to the gym, he goes on his runs and stuff. And especially when we told him about the role, he went on some runs with some of the cast, the youngsters that we got. And, you know, they'd meet at a park, run some lines, and then run some laps around the lake. He he got involved into it pretty well. It was a good sport. Yeah, you know, we talk about running in L.A. Whenever I'm in L.A. and I go run, and I hate it because it's like a stoplight every quarter mile, it's really hard to run in the city anywhere. Yeah. You can run on the beach, but where you guys are running, where this is shot, there's sort of a, the equivalent of a backwoods yeah. in out where you guys are, which is running through the arroyos and in the tracks and that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. Actually, right behind our high school, there's like this reservoir and then a wood chip trail that goes alongside like the one of the those concrete rivers. And yeah, it's wood chip for about five miles out, which is makes for a nice ten easy ten mile run. But you know what? Throughout LA, though, Chris, there's a lot of hidden little creeks and trails and parks that you can find to run in. So it's not necessarily stop and go. If you ch Some people choose that. They, they like the whole, I'm being seen. People can see me running. I'm being held accountable. I better look good. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's like if I'm running and then I see a pack of people coming, oh, my form is going to turn into the cover of Runner's World magazine, you know? <laughs> and so, I don't know. I think some people get a kick out of running in the streets and jogging at that red stoplight and stuff. And some people like to disappear into the wilderness. And it's not hard to find in L.A., though, Chris. It's pretty diverse. As much as it seems like a big city, it's, the landscape is very diverse. You're not that far away from some hills or from some trail or, or uh, something like that. Or you're only an hour away from the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I live in Pasadena right now. And I just, uh, a mile away, I go into these trails that lead up into the San Gabriel Mountains for miles and miles. And it's just I completely disappear where I don't see any cars or hear any cars. And that's just a mile away from my house in Pasadena. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of good running trails, I think, out here. So um, we were talking before about just the structure of a high school cross-country team. It's almost like a pre-built Shakespearean structure for you to wrap a story around, right? You've got your coach 
which is your mentor. You've always got your star. Maybe you've got a bad kid. Maybe you've got the Joker, you know, sort of the Falstaffian kid. And it's it's a built-in sort of Rocky story, right? Yeah. That- you got a lot of rich fodder there to weave a story through. But it also has sort of a risk of falling into some tropes. How do you, how do your, you and your actors manage that balance and retain the authenticity and, you know, get across what it's like to be on a cross-country team. That's where the your personal experiences kick in, Chris, where you, you kind of have to forget what you've seen on other movies, even though I love, like, Rocky and Karate Kid. I'm a sucker for those sports movies, but you got to kind of forget about that and just go deep into your personal memories and the characters that you remember. And even though this is all fictional, it, you take every character's bits and pieces of people that I've met or myself or just things that I've imagined. And you just, you try to, um, without making cartoons of these characters, you just try to make them feel real just like you knew them in person. I can remember uh, running cross country in high school and having the rides in the van to meets and the practices and the meets themselves. And it's very close for a team. It's not like a basketball team or a football team. It's much smaller. And it's both an individual sport and a team sport, unlike a real team sport like a basketball or a hockey team or something like that. Yeah, the the individual element is it's what will drive you to want to be good. I think the team is what really takes you there to be great. That's what makes it fun. I was I also wrestled in high school, and uh, I remember there being this thing where like I kind of had to choose which one I wanted to be great at. I could be great at both, but. It turned out to be a no-brainer because cross-country was all of my best friends, and that's the one where I wanted to really be great for myself, but not just for myself, but for my team and everyone around me for that. Now, that's funny. I'm a wrestler, too, and uh, the same sort of dynamics, right? A small team, it's individual, yeah. but it's team. It's funny, right? how they, yeah, they sp- those, it's funny how those sports spoke to us. Um, like, yeah, wrestling, you're out there. You're the only guy re- taking that guy down, and you're the only guy running up that hill. But uh, it's the, that team dynamic that makes it special, makes it memorable, and eventually will help you become great. Yeah, so making a movie is super hard, right? I mean, that's not for the faint of heart no, there, no, no. Anthony. Hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> Hardest thing, yeah, especially in L.A. where it's just full of sharks. you got to have some significant internal driving passion or purpose to want to make a movie about a cross-country team yeah. <laughs> on your own like this. What? Talk to me about that purpose and that passion. Yeah, definitely. We're going to hit so many roadblocks and then setbacks and at the end of the day it's that core drive like you said that passion that will always get you moving again and it's funny how this project evolved i mean me as a writer i wrote a story that i found interesting and yeah passionate about the subject and stuff but once you make a movie the business aspects come in the artistic aspects are still there, but you have to finally just kind of go back and channel that purpose. And it was just, you know, I guess that purpose, though, more than running, is just uh, friends and family. It's the people that you're doing a project for, whether it be the actors that you're trying to help their careers or the community that you're representing in the movie. Those are the bigger things about it. And running, it's funny talking about the whole drive and how difficult it is. Running has that parallel where I think being a runner instilled in me this um, need to finish being a runner you it doesn't matter how hard that run is how long it is and you just gotta finish you can't leave things undone and that marathon where the two or three miles are the hardest you just gotta finish you see that you know there's a finish line and you gotta get there even if you didn't run that best time or if you're bleeding already and and that has helped me with this project where i gotta finish whether we're bleeding or it hurts (laughs) i had to finish and, uh, I think that's a that's a great metaphor for life, for anything you're going to do. You know, I see that in business a lot yeah. where people have great ideas, but they're not willing to suffer for those ideas. Yeah, you, got- you know, they'll give it one or two tries and then they'll give up. Mm-hmm. But you, you get if it's a good idea, you got to be really, really patient. It's hard. Yeah. And I think it was I was definitely uh, bred into me through running, through the culture of running, yeah. that type, the type of toughness and that's the latin root for patience and passion is the same it means suffer yeah <laughs> oh look at that so that's interesting varsity punks is this uh sort of the, the conflict on your team here between the uh, football star and the punk rock guy yeah definitely you know it's funny um i think the title itself is a contradiction varsity very represents establishment being part of a high school organization sport and then punk is not that it's being anti-establishment doing things your own way and uh it's funny but 
yeah, these characters, the two main characters are kind of opposites. They have some similarities. But yeah, it's funny. Running, I think, is the most punk sport there is, <laughs> if I had to pick one. It's not about, like, football is about material rewards. You have a, a crowd of, like, 400 people and lights and um, pe- cheerleaders and band. And then running is so minimal in terms of what you get back. It's pretty punk. And just the word punk needed to be in there for me. A, a type of athlete. It pretty much represents for me varsity punks is the word is um, a different type of athlete that he marches by his own what is it Dr- drummer yeah by to his own drummer uh, type I see the kid wearing the misfits uh, t shirt yeah yeah so we're talking real punks here <laughs> yeah at least at least one of them is a real punk the other ones are just punk by philosophy they kind of do what they want their own way I didn't want to go to the typical fashion type of punk where they're all wearing mohawks it's more like a punk kid like hey punk kid you know whether he's a skater or um, some kind of troublemaker yeah more of a societal misfit right yeah exactly that's the the punk we went for there you know it's funny a lot of the famous runners that I talked to like Dave McGilvery or he's the race director for the Boston Marathon or or some of these other guys who are really famous runners became runners because they were too small for the football team because <laughs> they got cut from the football team. <laughs> yeah, there's so many other factors too that lead into that. There's a scene where the coach asks them, why did you guys join cross country? And their first answers are because it was free, because my mom couldn't let, didn't let me play football, because I can't throw. And, and the coach is like, whoa, 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 that's not what I wanted to hear. you know. <laughs> and then finally they kind of dig in and says, I don't know, to be part of a team. And some other kid says to be a champion. And that was the truth, the, the core inside of them. But yeah, there's so many other little factors like too small, not good at, at throwing or catching, stuff like that. Eventually yeah. you get in, let into that. But yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny how society defines an athlete, right? Our U.S. society, anyhow, defines an athlete. So what were some of the big challenges you've had so far bringing this project along? When do you think it's going to see the light of day, Anthony? You know what? It's it's almost done, Chris. Right, The last thing we need is sound design, and that's actually a pricey process that we thought we could do a lot of sound design on our own. But to watch a movie on your laptop or a trailer on your laptop is so different than watching it in a big movie theater. And the sound's got to be done by these professionals in the studio. I mean, even the squeaking of a door has got to sound sharp. Yeah. So that's last. And that should take us about a month. That means we'll be ready for some kind of special premiere in the summertime, whether it be June or July. And then from there, we got to sell the movie. we got to entice distributors to put our movie out in theaters and eventually digital distribution. So this summer slash fall is when the movie should be available for people. So you got to take it to any... Uh, Film festivals? Yeah. Yeah, that's the goal. We've been applying starting a couple months ago. So we'll see. There's one in LA that hopefully we get into. It's in June. And then the, there's some throughout the summer and early fall. There's one... Uh, tri- what is it? No, Toronto, I think. Yep, Toronto Film Festival. Yep. And, you know, we're we're aiming big here, Chris. We're going for the big ones because there's a lot of local little ones. The Oh, the runners on the trail running movie festival. You know, they're so niche. They get so niche. Not that they yeah. exist. Yeah, we're going for the big ones. We really want to strike some kind of deal. You know, the other part of this is besides the passion part is you got to be able to be the businessman. And we're talking about difficulties, Chris. And I think one of the hard things why independent artists don't survive is because they're artists almost by nature they're they don't like to think about numbers and marketing and an audience they're driven from the inside and try to create art and you got to wear that other hat and you got to be the businessman you got to negotiate hard and you got to sometimes alter your product so that it fits a market and fits an audience and that's one of the difficulties i think that most indie filmmakers don't last they'll make that one movie and maybe it turned out great but if nobody saw it and didn't make any money, then, buddy, you're not going to make a second and third movie, you know? Yeah, I think it's like any startup. So any startup business, or the first iteration, you're doing everything. You're the salesperson. You're the marketing person. You're the person designing everything. And then as you get some traction, you can start to hire people in to help you and get more leverage. But Yeah, exactly. That first pass, you got to do everything yourself. Is that true? Yeah, no, I did. I did. I, luckily, I had a good supportive team, and this, this was my core team of. And they were friends. I got close friends who were very skilled at what they do, and and who had the time. That was the other thing. And they just supported me. But I did, for the most part, everything was driven from me, and uh, it took everything from me. You know, I'm re- I got recently married, Chris, about two years ago, and yeah, being a year into it, it's when I told her, man, I'm gonna go for it and produce a movie. <laughs> And I don't know what this is going to take, babe. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of time. 
I might not be home sometimes. I might be working late, but um, I want you to be with with me on this because <laughs> with marriages you don't want any surprises, you know. Like, oh, he's a different guy now. But no, I let her know, and now she's been really supportive. So, but it did take a big part of me, and luckily she's been alongside with me for the whole process. One of the books on my pile of books that I'm going to read that I'm looking at is uh, Robert Rodriguez's uh, Rebel Without a Crew. Oh yeah, <laughs> you probably read that one. No, yeah, I did read that one. Yeah, I did read that one. Yeah, same sort of thing, right? Doing everything yourself and stealing cameras and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, it's a tough business. Good for you for being able to uh, to hang in there. Oh, thank you. Know? Yeah, thank you. Because cause you're just starting, right? I mean, you get the thing produced. Now you got to go through distribution. Yeah. And distribution is a whole nother pool of sharks. It is. It is. You got a lot of people get burnt out. You get burnt out. Raising the money was step one. Raising the money and creating a business, like an actual company was step one. And then step two is the planning and the shooting. And I would say we're on step three would be post-production. Step four will be distribution, the sell of it. And it is a whole nother battle. Sometimes you need a whole nother budget for it. But we'll see We'll see where this goes. The most important thing is we're going to have a movie. We're going to have a watchable we're movie. Gonna, and give birth. Yeah, uh-huh. Why should people go see this? Being on your podcast, you know, runners, I think, like I had said earlier, is kind of a underrepresented culture. But this movie is about subcultures, Chris. Running, I think, is a subculture. I'm Latino and, you know, I'm U.S. born, born in L.A. And a lot of my friends are Mexican or Asian, but we're all American. I see it as an American comedy. It has the whole struggle to belong. There's some conflicts here, the the crush with the girl, except I'm going to color this world how I've known my world. That's a subculture in itself, and at least in terms of mainstream cinema. So, yeah, I just kind of want to bring subcultures. The, the good thing about indie films is we get to bring subcultures into the highlight and mainstream big budget movies have to play it safe and they have to do things so that they're very easily accessible by as many people as possible yeah. you know i'm not scared to that some people might not gravitate towards this movie but i think it's well-rounded enough where they're universal themes to be a teenager and to yeah. try to belong and to have some kind of um, talent and have it taken away like that quarterback these are all things that we can all that can all register with all of us. So um, it's just it's going to be told in a very refreshing manner. You want to see high school, you know, teenagers refreshing manner. You want to see the whole running culture in a refreshing manner. It's going to feel familiar, but definitely like nothing you've seen. Right. I want to see it. At least you got me. <laughs> Thank you. So um, when you look at uh, you grew up in east of L.A., you grew up on the cross country team. You grew up doing it through university in California. What do you think the being in that running culture, what do you think that does for kids to develop? What's the benefit of that? What do you learn from that? Well, definitely a little bit of what we talked about earlier, this tenacity, this perseverance to set goals, to have a plan and discipline to accomplish them. And then in terms of character, I think it's very character building. It's funny, I think runners... Teenage runners are a different breed than football and basketball, those other sports. I mean, shoot, when we're when we're little kids and 10 years old and kids are playing peewee football, I've seen these peewee football practices. These coaches are yelling at these kids. The parents apply so much pressure on these kids to be great. I mean, these kids are already cool at 10 years old because they're in peewee football. I think there's so, also some socioeconomic factors there where if you don't have the money to play peewee football or be on the junior cheerleading squad, you don't get in there. But there's a certain sense of humility. Humility, I guess I want to get to in terms of character, yeah. a, a sense of humility where it's not about being a star. It's not about being recognized or being cool or standing out. It, it always starts from within very intrinsic reward and then it builds from there. So I think there's a, yeah, definitely a sense of, of humility of, of being able to find fulfillment in simpler things. And not being sucked yeah. in by su like superficial material rewards. So I think that runners are kind of like that. Yeah, so it teaches you sort of that humility. And with that humility is a certain amount of honesty and authenticity. I like yeah. that. That's good. 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 So what do you want people to do? What's your uh, call to action here? Where can they go to find this or find you or help out? Yeah, so, yeah, well, we're all over social media. Varsity Punks on Facebook. Uh, we're Varsity Punks on Instagram and on YouTube. You just type in Varsity Punks, you will find our page. And, you know, if you follow us, you just find our, all our updates, all our content that we're putting up. And, of course, on Kickstarter, that's what's happening now. 
Kickstarter's on till actually, and um, we're raising money for that post production. So if people go on there, they're gonna find all kinds of rewards and incentives, whether it be um, a tickets to the premiere, a signed poster, some kind of writer's workshop with with me, one on one. There's different rewards that people co- can come in and 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 pick up if they find interesting. Otherwise, if people, this is something that people want to see, a movie that they they want to help support, then there's also you can also make flat donations and and you know we just appreciate it. This is a homegrown project that it's just trying to do it through humble beginnings and I'd appreciate people to be able to contribute otherwise just share and follow our content alright awesome and there's a website too yeah. right varsitypunks.com alright right. well I'm looking forward to seeing the movie Sim. I'll make sure I'm on the uh, mailing list when it gets released okay, cool thank you so much Chris alright man it was great talking to you great I, I can't wait to see you on the red carpet and I can say you know what I, I knew that guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> I knew that guy before he was famous. Yeah, yeah. We got to go on a run when you're out, out here in L.A. I'll t- yeah, you I'll can show me something better than the back roads of L.A.X., yeah, right? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Definitely could. All right. Chris. All right. Thanks. Thank Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Five ways that following your passion is a myth. I have had this conversation with a couple people this week, some people my age, but also with a millennial. We were commiserating about the advice being given out to people, and youngsters in particular. Over the last couple of years, it's been trendy to say, all you have to do is find your passion. If you find that thing you're passionate about and pursue it as your life's purpose and your career, You'll always be happy and lead a fulfilling, complete life. You know, if it were this simple, the world would consist of mostly mediocre ballet dancers and bad poets. There's a reason it doesn't. There are natural forces at work. Number one, confusing happiness with pleasure. The first thing that bothers me about this is we seem to be equating happiness with pleasure I mean, I'm all for pleasurable experiences, but I'm sure you'll agree with me that the most important and fulfilling things we stumble upon in life aren't always pleasant. I'll be lining up for my 18th Boston Marathon in a couple weeks, and I can honestly say there isn't much pleasant about racing a marathon. It is extraordinarily fulfilling for me. It has been life-changing, even life-defining for me, but pleasant? No. This journey of mine with endurance sports has been hard, but that is part of what makes it worthy. When we tell people to seek their passion, but define it as the thing they love to do, it can send the wrong message. My fear would be that they take the easy path in pursuit of pleasure instead of the worthy path in pursuit of passion. Number two, confusing passions with hobbies. You may really like comic books, but you probably don't want to own a comic book store. You may love to cook, but that doesn't make you a restaurateur. By telling people to follow their passion, we may be laying a false trail. I used to make beer. That doesn't mean I should open a brewery. It's okay to have hobbies, but don't confuse them with your purpose. The key question for you to ask is... Will this still be a passion if I have to do it? Will it still be fun and fulfilling if I have to do it for 100 hours a week and not get paid enough to survive? The current advice shames or forces people to take perfectly good, fulfilling hobbies and turn them into nightmare careers. Just because you love to run marathons doesn't make you a coach, and that's okay. Hobbies are great. Hobbies are a big part of our portfolio lives but understand them for what they are. Number three, confusing passion with talent. Guess what? You may not be talented enough to succeed at your passion. In any given pursuit, only the top few achieve pro status. We see it in sports. We see it everywhere. Putting in your 10,000 hours of effort doesn't guarantee you'll be great. You'll probably be good, maybe very good, but great is something given, not gotten. Your passion may be ballet or basketball, but there are only a few 
that will be able to do it as a viable career. That doesn't mean it can't still be your passion. That doesn't mean you can't participate and draw great fulfillment from it. But it may not be your career, and it doesn't have to be. You can have your passions and also make enough dough to put bread on your table. Number four, myth. There is only one true, all-consuming passion. Not only are we told we need to find and pursue our passion, but we are told that there is only one true, soul-burning passion. And we are shamed if we can't glint steely-eyed into the void and declare our one passion. Well, it's a bunch of bull. Sure, some people might be wired that way, but that doesn't make them any better or smarter or happier than you. The majority of us aren't wired that way. I might suggest that maybe those of us with a portfolio of passions have a better chance at happiness and fulfillment. You can have many passions. Why not? Your passions will change over time. They will ebb and flow with your life. Roll with it. And number five, it's okay to get a job. You know, what's a good way to support your passions? Having a paycheck. But I don't know what I want to do with my life. It's okay. I'll share a secret with you. Nobody does. And those that say they do are either hypnotized or lying. The trick is to do something. And one of the best things you can do is to get a job. Yeah, many jobs aren't that fulfilling, but they can enable your passions. They can also help you find your path. They can lead you to things and situations and people that will uncover the nascent passions in your soul as you roll through your life. In my defense, I'm not being negative. I'm not being cynical or even realistic. I'm just pointing out that all this pop advice around finding your passion may be more harmful than helpful. Life is a buffet of people, places, and things. Get out there and start sampling and see what or who you like and what or who, just maybe, you might be passionate about. Don't pack yourself uncomfortably into a monolithic passion or purpose if it's not right for you. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Friends and members, runners and cavaliers, you have giggled, guffawed, snickered your way through the end of episode 336 of the Run Run Loop podcast. Now go do something useful. When this podcast drops, I'll be around eh, 10 days out from Boston. I'm still not injured or broken. I'm a little heavy, but my legs are strong. Coach has me doing some pace runs and shorter track stuff to freshen the legs, as they say. The hay is in the barn, and it's almost time to dance with the devil. Did you see uh, Neely from last week's interview was on the cover of that famous running magazine this month? I swear those guys just follow me around just to poach my good ideas. A couple of reminders before I let you go. You can still support my Team Hoyt campaign for Boston. The links are in the show notes. And April 24th is the 25th running of the Groton Road Race. We've set up a virtual race if you want to go. Just go to grottenroadrace.com. Hope to see you there. It has been a great privilege for me to be able to work with this race over the last decade or so. I figure everyone already knows by now, but I do have three books you can get on Amazon. The first is called The Midpacker's Lament, and it's a collection of running stories, some of them quite funny, Eric. The next is The Midpacker's Guide to the Galaxy, is a second collection of stories, some of them quite funny too, Eric. And my latest, uh, Marathon BQ, outlines the program and all the tricks and tips I used to qualify for Boston when I was a puppy. And that one's on Audible, too, and isn't funny at all. So, hey, so how about a couple more jokes? These were a little edgier, so you might want to put the three- to five-year-olds in the back seat and tell these to your ten-year-olds. What do you get when you run in front of a car? Tired. Get it? What do you get when you run behind a car? Exhausted. All right, so what do you... 
<laughs> what do you do when a golden retriever throws a pin at you? Run. She's got a hand grenade in her mouth. That's it. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to Boston and Groton. As I'm getting older, I'm learning to enjoy these great signpost moments in my life. I stop and smell the roses better than I used to. I can't tell if it's the blunting of my own passions or the sanguinity of self-awareness. My friend Zen Runner did a bit a few weeks ago about bucket list items. And I was looking at the things that people came up with and wondering about my own list, which is another strange thing we do. We compare the things we've accomplished or the bucket list we have with other people's, right? People were listing things like run a marathon or an ultra or qualify for bus and things like that. And it kind of struck me that while I've been going about my business, I've collected a fair amount of souvenirs and memories. And I've been uh, very lucky. I've been graced and for that I'm grateful you know run a marathon yeah how about more than 50 New York Chicago Boston qualify for Boston yep write a book Uh uh-huh three of them ultra sure start a business yes sir triathlons yep mountain bike ultras done be a race director affirmative run a relay yep hood to coast yep Ragnar as an ultra team and win it, did that. Read the classics, most of them. Stayed married, raised a couple of functional adults. President accounted for it. See the world, good chunk of it. Interestingly, I never sat down and said, these are the things that I want to accomplish. All this stuff was an organic melange of little projects and interests over time a portfolio of hobbies and passions and necessities. And I'm not done, not by a long shot. I've got a list of cool stuff in my back pocket that I'm going to shoehorn into this world one way or the other. Like the marquee on a B-movie, The Adventure Continues, dot, dot, dot. And it's not a contest. There's no score on the polished granite marker that will lay in the grass above your withered corpus delecti. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, it's all the same. Do what interests you. Don't keep score. Keep swinging away until the bat falls from your hands. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Get a little coffee in. Ah, Komodo dragon. Aye. Aye. Komodo dragon.